Father, we just come before you right now. Every wayward thought, every emotion, everything that would rise up in us, it bows the knee in the name of Jesus to the reality of your manifest presence in this room. And Lord, we ask that every intended outcome, that you would steward it, that you would open hearts, that you would make a yes easy. Lord, we want our yeses to be full. God, posture us to receive what you have for us tonight. Lord, we don't want to miss anything. Fill us afresh right now with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Goodness. So I'm, I'm super thankful to be getting to speak on Saturday night because when you're speaking in a sanctuary moment, it doesn't really matter what you say, right? I mean, I could literally get up here and go, bee, 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 and he would come and powerfully move in the room. And so I am so at rest. It's wonderful. And up to this point, it feels like there have been three things that the Lord has highlighted as, as we've heard from Jimmy, as we've heard from Andrew, as the Lord has begun to minister to us in different ways. And the first one is blueprints. God has blueprints for us, ways that his kingdom works that we can follow. Surrender. He is calling us to say yes to him no matter what the cost. And finally, lordship. He's inviting us into this place of recognizing that he is the Lord. And if he is the Lord, we should be able to confidently follow him wherever he leads us and be secure in whatever he has. So Jimmy talked about Isaiah 6, and, and I know Jimmy did a lot of calisthenics up here. I don't have as much energy as Jimmy, though he is a little bit older, so I probably will not be able to keep up with him on the exercise front, but he brought out some incredible points that I think are really important that will help us have a framework for some of the things that God wants to say to us tonight, and specifically out of this Isaiah 6 passage, we're going to see the Lord. And then we're going to consecrate ourselves. And once we've seen the Lord, and once we recognize that his response to our willingness is mercy and not judgment, once we recognize that he responds with grace and not criticism, it makes the next line, here am I, send me, so much easier to say. And then Andrew talked about how we have a war between the cultures, the culture of the church and the culture of the world, and how we have an upside-down paradigm that has begun to infiltrate things, and how if we as believers are going to be able to navigate the coming season, we have to understand how to rightly view things, how to rightly consider them. Remember, he talked about the pyramid. We're at the bottom, you have the word of God. 
And then you have the tradition of the church. And then you have reason. And up here, I love the way he said this. And up here at the tippy, tippy top, you have how you feel about it. And yet we live in a culture that says, actually, the most important thing is how you feel about it. And up at the tippy, tippy top is, I wonder if God says anything about this in his word. So these are the two paradigms that have been challenged for us over the first two sessions. And tonight, I'm going to talk about, in the first part, we're going to talk about another paradigm that I believe that the Lord is challenging, and that is the culture within the church. So we have the culture outside the church versus the culture of the church. But I also want to talk about this culture that war that is happening within the church. And then I'm going to invite you into my story and share a little bit about what God has done in and through my and my family's life. In the book of Joshua, we get this incredible story of the fulfillment of a very long arc of promise that God has spoken over the nation of Israel. And in Joshua 24, we have the final culmination of the walking into the inheritance. And so Joshua has led the people effectively into defeating the enemies of the land, and he is now meeting with the leaders of the different communities and clans and tribes of the nation of Israel to talk about how do we walk forward from here. And it's in this passage that we have this, in this, in this uh, chapter that we have this passage that we all know. Verses 14 and 15 of Joshua 24. Joshua looks at the people and he says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshiped beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You see, there was a problem that the Israelites faced. Yes, they had conquered the land, but not everyone who lived there was gone. And so as they came out of wartime into a time of actually figuring out how to navigate life, the very real temptation of turning to the gods of the land was present. And Joshua knew this. And can I suggest to you that we are in a similar time right now where the Lord has brought his church through this beautiful and challenging pruning process over the last five years. Every one of you who is in this room right now, you are here because you have contended to be here. You are not here without having to contend because every easy exit was offered to you over the last five years. But just as in the days of Joshua, today we recognize that God is removing the middle ground. 
there used to be this term called fence sitting. Sitting on the fence, attempting to live with one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the kingdom of this earth. And the Lord in these days, just as in the days of Joshua, because he didn't give them the option of serving the Lord and the gods of the land, he said, you will either serve the Lord or the gods of the land. There's no place in the middle. And can I just submit to you that that is where we are today? This desire that we sometimes have to want to live with a foot over here in our own control and a foot in the kingdom of God, he has removed it. The spirit of Laodicea, that lukewarm place has been eliminated. And so we are faced with a similar question that Joshua posed to the Israelites in that day. Choose this day who you'll serve. Will you serve the Lord? or will you serve the gods of the land? And the people immediately say, we will serve the Lord. There's no hesitation. They don't shrink back. They immediately say, we will serve the Lord. And they go on about how they're going to do this. And then in verses 19, we have a very interesting thing happen here. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. You see, Joshua recognized that the response of the Israelites to his challenge was a response of assent, but not surrender. Oh yes, we agree with what you say, but he recognized it was words of the mouth and not words of the heart. And we, beloved, are in a very similar place. I have a question for you. Would you continue to say amen to the words of the pastor if you knew you were going to be held accountable for them? Sometimes we so easily buy into this culture of assent. Somebody says something and we agree, but in our heart, we're not really there. And Joshua saw, this is what is going on with my people and I can't let it be this way. And in the aftermath of that rebuke, the people got it. They recognized, okay. <sighs> you ever had that moment where you say yes to something and then you realize, oh my gosh, I actually have to do this thing? Anybody ever been there before? Hands raised? Yep, mm -hmm, me too. And you're like, oh wow. Oh no. Oh heck. You know, you, you start slowly downgrading your commitment level. It's like when you ask someone how they're doing and they say, good, and you keep looking at them and they go, okay, fine. And I'm like, how much are you gonna downgrade this before we actually get to the truth, right? And this is what the people say. And we're gonna read this whole passage and we're gonna unpack it just a little bit. But the people said to Joshua, no! Punctuation matters, right? So when we see an exclamation point in the scriptures, 
It's actually right to read it as though it's there, right? No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. And on that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people. And there at Shechem, he drew up for them decrees and laws. And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us, and it will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. So Joshua issues the challenge. And can I share with you what I believe the challenge is? He said, we cannot move forward as a half-hearted people. We must be people of a whole heart. And as I was praying this morning and asking the Lord, Lord, what do you have to say? And he said, will you tell my people that it is not okay to run a half-hearted race with wholehearted moments? And I saw this picture of someone getting up every day and going to a a track and running around the track and it's each lap, someone was there and they would slap their hand and go, woo, as though that was the culmination of everything, this wholehearted moment in this half-hearted life. And Allison came and picked me up this morning and I was kind of processing this with her. And she goes, well, that, that sounds okay. We're learning how to run. And then I said, but we're also controlling destination. You see, God has called us to live a wholehearted life with him and to understand that along the way, there will be some half-hearted moments. But if we surrender, if we say, Lord, we will do what you have asked, we will say yes to you, we will be wholehearted in our decision-making, now we're talking. Now we have something that we can move forward. Each of the sessions, we've so many of us have been up here on our face or on our knees or jumping around with our hands up, and all of these things are so wonderful and appropriate. But I've been to a lot of world mandates in my life, a bunch, definitely more than 20. And can I tell you how many times I came up and I laid on my face and because I didn't build in an accountable plan to follow through on what God was speaking to me, within a week it was lost. And I believe that the Lord is speaking over this house that there is an invitation to wholeheartedness. He has dreams and promises and desires for this body and the individuals within this body, but they're only available to the wholehearted, to those who are fully in, to those who have decided, Jesus, you 
are the Lord. You are my Lord. I will go wherever you go, no matter what you say, no matter what the cost. Lord, I'm with you. So here's my challenge to you. Y'all take great notes here, by the way. I I look over your shoulders when you don't know I'm looking. I just want you to know that I'm doing that. Um, I don't read all of it, just some of it, so it's okay, right? (laughs) But can I just tell you that there are deep things that he has spoken to some of you that are in danger of being lost if you don't activate them. If you don't sit with those that you know will hold you accountable to follow through if you don't put action to the things he's stirring in your heart, then this world mandate will just be another hand slap on another lap around the track. But the Lord is inviting you to destinations and guess what? His destinations, you can't guess them. You cannot control them. You cannot even imagine where he's leading. And so you have to be content just to run with him. Just to run with him. So there's this thing that I like to do. I believe that the power of the spoken word is a thing. So I'm going to ask you a question, and I actually want you to answer me. Will you, as a wholehearted follower of Jesus, intentionally and with accountability, follow up on everything he has prompted in your heart this weekend? Is there anyone that didn't say any words? If there are, I'm going to give you another chance. (laughs) Will you follow through with intentionality and accountability to the things that God has prompted in your heart over this weekend? By your own words you have spoken. And just as Joshua said to the people, I say to you, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. And now you're accountable to one another to walk these things out. And if you want to see revival come, start walking out the promptings that God begins to speak over you and start doing it in the context of a submitted community and then get ready. Get ready. But if you think that you can just hang out and be in this middle place, this middle place is not going to exist anymore. Because as we've heard already, we are in a battle. It is no longer chic to be a part of the church. It is now not the cool thing to be right? We are in a war for the purposes and the truth of God. And there is no place on the front lines for a half-hearted soldier. Amen? Amen. 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 I hope none of you, I know I'm speaking, oh, see, I did it. Jimmy, sorry. All right, so I, I, I hope that this doesn't feel too strong for you, but the reality is you wouldn't be here if you didn't want it. This is not a place you come if you want to stay half-hearted. There are lots of other places you can go to get your ears tickled. This is not it. So if it's the desire of your heart, delight yourself in him and let's get after those things. Amen? Amen.
good grief. Yes, of course. Amen. <laughs> so I, I, I wanted to start with that as a foundation for where we're going from here. And I want to share just a little bit of my and my family's journey. Um, some of you have heard this story, um, but there'll be parts of it you've not heard. Many of you have no idea who I am, so you're like, I have no idea what you're going to say, which is wonderful. My family and I moved to the Middle East in 2004. And I'm going to tell some stories about what happened in our time there, but I, as I was sitting in Pete Klein's office, kind of waiting on the Lord before this, he, the Lord highlighted some pieces that I think are important. And so I'm going to start a little bit before we deployed. So we go into our support raising process. Have any of you guys raised support for a short-term trip or any of that kind of stuff, right? Asking, money, asking for money kind of hard, right? Well, I have the story for you. This is what we did. We sent out one letter, and within one month, we had over 90% of our, of our monthly and over 80% of our one time. And we hadn't asked anyone in person a single question. We're like, hallelujah. Yeah, we're so stoked, right? Everything's going so wonderfully. And within another month or so, we are completely funded, 100%. And we're like, sweet. And all we had to do was sell our house. That's all we had to do. Now, we're, in a, we're coming out of a, what has been a very good housing market situation, right? Our, the price of our house in Waco has gone up a lot. Thank you, Chip and Joe. <laughs> Credit where credit's due, right? <laughs> and back in 2002, 2003, it was a similar situation where houses in our neighborhood were literally selling as quickly as they were placed on the market and oftentimes for well over what their value was. It was not uncommon for a foundation to be poured and for realtors to be standing around the contractor having a bidding war over a home not yet built. It was insane. And we had a cool house. Now understand in Waco, cool houses don't cost anything. And so it was great, right? And our realtor comes and looks at the house and she says, okay, listen, this house is wonderful. It's going to sell within six weeks for more than you ask. I, I promise. Huh. So that weekend, a lady walked in. She goes, I love your house. And I'm, I'm trying to decide between your house and another house. She chose the other house. And it would be well over a year before anyone else showed any interest in our home whatsoever. I had quit my job, my wife had quit her job because we were imminently going and our realtor told us six weeks. It costs more to live in America than it does to live in the Middle East. And so all that money just began to dwindle. And the Lord, you're gonna love this, the Lord had called us to sell everything. We sold everything and gave everything away. And I mean everything. So we're living in an almost completely empty home with a house that won't sell, thinking we were fully funded, and I had this moment. And it sounded something like this. God, why? Why are you doing this? Why did you provide and not to send us? I don't understand. 
My heart was vacillating between am I in or am I out? I was still being the judge of his goodness based on my interpretation of circumstances. And the Lord spoke to me and he said, son, now let me give you a little insight on how he speaks to me. If he says my name, Trey, I know it's going to be sweet. If he says, son, I know we're getting ready to feel discipline, but he disciplines those he loves, so it means I'm legit. So I'm so happy about that, right? And he said, son, are you willing to do anything? And I said, yes. He said, are you willing to buy five one-way plane tickets to the Middle East that leave six weeks from today? Yes. He said, okay. Go submit it to your leadership, and if they give you the approval, then do that. So I went and talked to Kevin Johnson, who was the boss guy at the time, and, and he goes, this is not how we do things. I'm like, Kevin, I know that, but you and I, were not people who do things the way we do things, right? And he goes, okay. So I bought five one-way tickets that day. The next day, the guy who bought my house walked in the door. We went through the normal closing process and we closed on the house on the Friday morning we left to go to the airport. Now, why am I sharing this little part of the story? Because there is something in us that must happen before we can walk out in the fullness of the calls of God on our life. And that is we must become decided. We must decide that he is the Lord and we are not. I was in Raleigh, North Carolina about a month ago talking with this, the pastor there. We have an Antioch church in Raleigh, North Carolina. His name's Steve Jellicorse. He's awesome. He looks like Santa Claus. He's, he's in his late 60s and has more energy than all of us put together and fathers the whole world. He is really an amazing guy. And we were talking through his discipleship process. You know, everyone's got their little alliterative discipleship processes and they have the five D's. And he said, our first one is decide. And I'm like, awesome. So if people get saved, he goes, oh, no, 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 no. He said, I am not having another conversation about supernatural calling with a person who has not decided that Jesus is the Lord. And as he spoke it, just this, I, my life is spent walking with young people and older people some too, but mostly with young people in their pursuit of what God has for them. And it just, I don't know if you've ever had a moment where you've been doing something for a really long time and you knew that there was a puzzle piece missing, but you couldn't put your finger on it and then God just goes, thunk, and there it is. And there it was. And can I tell you, for the times that are coming, if you have not settled the issue that Jesus is the Lord, and I'm not talking about singing Jesus is the Lord, I'm not talking about quoting that Jesus is the Lord. I'm talking about following Jesus is the Lord. That he speaks and you move. That he calls and you answer. That he invites and you say yes. He says sacrifice and you say yes, sir, willingly and with everything that I have. But if you desire supernatural calling without lordship, you're one trial away from quitting. 
Because understand that supernatural journeys have supernatural trials. And guess what? If you're the Lord and he's not, you're not supernatural. And so when you encounter it, you have no choice but to walk away. But if he is the Lord, all things become possible to you. All things. Now, let me preface this by saying, I'm a bit of a kid. I love to play far more than I like to work. I don't take very much seriously, though you may think, well, you seem intense. Yeah, I know, I seem intense, but get to know me a little bit. There's nothing special about me. I don't have this giant pedigree that I'm walking into. I'm not super gifted in everything. But I decided through that process, okay, Jesus, you are the Lord. And it changed my life. And it made what I'm going to tell you next possible. So we arrive in the Middle East. And when I tell you that we had nothing, I'm not talking about the cute nothing where you actually have $100,000 in a retirement account somewhere. I'm talking about absolute zero nothing. We, weren't, we didn't owe anybody anything, but we didn't have anything. So we are literally buying one piece of furniture a month. My wife is four months pregnant with our fourth child. We have three kids, ages at that time, six, five, and 18 months. And we're pregnant with number four. We're all sleeping on the floor in a tile apartment that is about 900 square feet. Woo! <laughs> in the first year, man, I'm not gonna lie to you, it was challenging and beautiful. We learned language, we learned culture, but we also just had some horrible things happen. My dad had a, a second heart attack that we really thought was going to take his life. I had a cousin in that first year that committed suicide. And both Leanne and I lost friends in murder-suicide situations, all within about a four-month period, and all within our first year on the field. There were so many things, so many things. And, and you know what I realized? I realized, Lord, if I hadn't decided, any one of these could send me home. But I decided, you are the Lord. And because you are the Lord, I am going to follow you. I'm going to walk with you. I don't understand, but I'm going to follow, follow you. And then it all came to a head one day in the summer of 2005. So I know when all of you look at me, the first thing you think is that guy played professional basketball overseas. <laughs> Tell the truth, you've all been thinking he is the picture of athleticism. There is no question that that guy had a career in sports somewhere, but I did. So through an amazing, miraculous circumstance, I got to play in the Jordanian Professional Basketball League. How amazingly cool is that? Let's just stop and say, wow, okay? <laughs> Amen, I see that hand, yep. And on this particular day, 
We're driving into the capital city, me and a couple of my teammates, and we're going to a place where the better players in the country all gather to play. And the, the road into the capital city is, is up this giant hill, and it's 14 lanes wide, seven lanes going each direction. And as I'm driving in the cruddiest car in the entire nation, we're I'm always in the right, farthest right-hand lane going about 15 miles an hour with much urging and praying, just hoping to ascend this hill. And I'm driving in the far right-hand lane, and I look to my right, and there's a group of people gathered here, and I don't know what they're doing, but anytime you drive down the road and you see a group of people, you become aware of them. Well, I also noticed that about from me to Adam, that there was a young boy and he was doing this. And all of a sudden he lowered his head and he ran out right in front of me and I hit him with my van. And I pulled over and my Arab friends who were in the car with me abandoned me. And I ran and I ran to this little boy and I don't know what to do. My language isn't good enough. I look down, I can see that his skull has been fractured and I don't know what to do. So I'm just holding him and I'm praying in the spirit over him because I don't know what to do. And I'm like, Lord, what do I do? Lord, help, help. And all of a sudden the sun goes out. And I look up and I'm surrounded three deep by his male relatives who were all gathered for a wedding. And now I realize my life is in danger. And I'm like, Lord, help. Thankfully, it was an honorable family and they scooped the boy up and we ran to my van and we drove to a hospital, a military hospital that was nearby. And, and they took this little boy in and, and it, you could tell that it was serious. And they rushed him in and doctors are running in and out and, and I'm having male relatives coming and mocking and taunting me and I don't know what they're saying and I'm, I'm afraid. And then the police come and they say, you have to come with us. And I, they take me to the police station. I'm sitting there in a sleeveless shirt and shorts, which is incredibly inappropriate for the Middle East. And the sheriff or the officer looks at me and says, if the boy dies, you go to prison. And I remember sitting there and I'm like, really? Really? This is how this is going to end. And I had my little fit. I said, God, I don't understand. And it was like the enemy was bringing up this question of, are you really decided? And I'm sitting there alone in this police station and I'm working through it. And after about four hours, we get a phone call and they said the boy's likely not going to live through the night. So now I'm like, I'm gonna go to jail and I'm in shorts and a tank top. Ugh. Two hours later, it's now two in the morning, they get a call and says, it's likely the boy's gonna survive. They said, the officer said, okay, you can go home, but you cannot leave until we call you. So I go home, one day passes, two day passes, three day passes, nobody calls. And can I just tell you, that's the worst feeling in the world. When you are waiting for news that could be just catastrophic and no, nobody calls. So finally we called them and they said, oh, everything is good. We've transferred him to this other hospital. And I'm like, what? So we go and visit him and he's still struggling, but doing quite a lot better. After a week, he's fully recovered. I'm chasing him through the hall. We're playing tickle and getting along splendidly. 
and it came time to settle the insurance. And the responsibility in the Middle East, at least in the country that we were in, is that you have to go to every hospital where the person was a patient and gather hospital reports. So I go to the first hospital and written in English on the admission report is young man uh, admitted to the hospital with a skull fracture, a subdural hematoma, which means that his brain was swelling underneath his skull. It's an incredibly serious condition, especially when paired with a fracture. And I'm like, what? And then I go to the second hospital where he was admitted two days later and written on the admission paper is concussion. And as I'm looking at these, driving in the car across the city, the Lord said, I healed him. He said, I did it for him, but I also did it for you. He said, I want you to know how ambitious I am for what I've called you to do. I want you to know that I am with you and that you don't have to worry that if you'll walk with me, I will be with you and you will see the things that I have promised. So fast forward four years, it's now 2010 and the civil war in Libya is blowing up. So this is when Gaddafi is still in power and there's a resistance against him. And we wanted to see if there was an opportunity in the midst of the chaos to plant churches there. Why wouldn't we, right? Because that's what we do. So I get an opportunity to go into Libya. So we're driving across what, and believe me when I tell you, it is frontier Libya. There is no government, there's no police, there's no nothing. It is the wild, wild west with Kalishnikovs. And we get into Benghazi, we have a chance to meet with a transitional government. Everything there is incredibly cool. It, goes, it was an amazing trip. And then it became time for us to contract a guy to bring us back to Cairo so I could fly back to our country. And the guy I was traveling with, another American, was not very enculturated. And so he and the driver begin to get sideways. And this conflict escalates and escalates and escalates. And we arrive at this little convenience store. And when I tell you that we are in the absolute frontier of Eastern Libya, we're talking never seen an American, this kind of place. And as we get out of the car, the argument hits a crescendo and it explodes. And this, the driver begins to say the only words he knows in English, which are all dirty. And he jumps into the van and he drives off with our luggage, our money, and our passports. And here we are, stuck in this tiny village in policeless frontier Libya in the midst of a civil war. Last time I faced something like this, I accused God. Really, God, is this how it's going to end? This time, I reacted differently because I had met him in that place of suffering and that place of struggle. And I said, Lord, I don't know what to do, but you know, tell me what to do. And he said, Trey, find the oldest person you can and find them quickly. So I started looking around and I peered my head around this corner and there's three sheikh, which is the plural of sheikh, 
with their average age is probably 65. They have beards down to their bellies and they're watching a soccer game. Now, when I stuck my head in the door, their eyes got really big. When I addressed them in Arabic, they liked to have fallen off of their chairs. You could tell that for them, this was the most supernatural thing that had ever happened to them. The fact that I even existed in their little village. And I explained to them the situation because I knew culturally that if I put myself under their care, that they were culturally committed to covering me. I said, we have a problem. Here is my problem. I need your help. And so they come out there and they start taking care of business with all, because there's a bunch of Arabs there and we're three Americans just kind of trying to figure it all out. And the Lord says, you need to call your wife. And so I go to the side of the building and remember, I am very far away from my country. And I said, Lord Jesus, I need you to connect me with my country's cell network right now. And a bar pops up and I push call. I'm able to talk to my wife and say, baby, here's what's going on. I need you to gather the team and pray. This is literally life or death. 20 seconds, hang up, bar disappears, never comes back. And about six or seven minutes later, as people around the globe, because once we told our team, they told everybody, right? The guy comes back. And we're able to get in and finish our journey. But I want you to hear something. That was a far scarier moment than the moment in that police station. But because I had learned that he is faithful and that he cares for me and that if he has set me on mission, he can lead me anywhere, even to a dark, tiny little village in the remotest part of Libya in the middle of a civil war. And even there, his faithfulness and his care and his goodness is enough. I want to pause here before we get to everything else that God did. And I want to say this to you. The stories of your life reflect the kingdom in which you live. The stories that you tell and the things that you deem important and the experiences that you have always reflect the kingdom in which you live. And if you're sold out and you've said yes to the Lord, then your stories are always peppered with his kingdom. You always see it because you live there and you begin to recognize, God, you've moved here. Lord, you're moving here. But if we live just in this one, Do you know what our stories are? Pitiful competitions. You ever been in a one-up environment where someone tells a story and someone goes, oh yeah, well I, and then someone else goes, well, yeah, well I, and it's everyone just trying to prove how of this kingdom that they really are. But we are not to be like this. Beloved, we are called to be of his kingdom. He's invited us. 
He's called us to be in the middle of what he's doing, right? He's called us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's actually invited us in the simplistic way he taught his disciples to pray, to be in the middle of him bringing his kingdom to earth. We're kingdom people, y'all. And if you find that your stories don't reflect the kingdom, ask the Lord, Lord, how can I be a kingdom person? How can I be a man or a woman after your own heart? How can I live in the kingdom that matters so that I'm not infatuated with the one that doesn't? You know, there's, a, there's an interesting scripture that everyone knows the first part too, but few know the second part too, but the second part's more important. This is one of my huge pet peeves is half a verse. I don't like half a verse. It's not good. And sometimes it's not just half a verse. It's just acknowledging, it's not acknowledging that there's actually context and more to the story than the verse you like to quote. And usually we choose the part we like, but sometimes we overfocus on the part we don't like and miss the good stuff. And that's what this one is. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. How many of you have heard this verse before? How many of you know the next verse? Yeah, like four of you. Let me tell you what the next verse is because, oh my gosh, it's such a big deal. It says, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be found mature and complete, lacking nothing. So the deception we buy into is, gosh, I just have to work so hard to get complete and mature and resourced. And then I can say yes. And Jesus is like, no, please say yes and walk with me. And as you walk with me, I will mature you and I will complete you and I will resource you. And so the enemy is always putting these things in front of you, pointing out your weakness so that you will self-disqualify from what Jesus has invited you into. And that stops today. Do you hear me? We're breaking it off. We're doing spiritual warfare in the name of Jesus right now over this room. Lord, in the name of Jesus, every false thought and every vain thing that has risen up against what you have called each man and woman in this room to do, we break it in the name of Jesus. And we ask that your spirit would come in like a flood and re-network their thinking. Lord, that they would see that you are all about bringing them into completion, that you are conforming them into your image. Jesus, would we never again say everyone but me? Would we never again say that's great for him or her, but not me? Would we stop coming to the lovely Savior who crafted a story of our lives from before the foundations of the earth and telling him we're not worthy to walk it. Remember, beloved, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And the one who purchased you is the author of your destiny. Can you think of a greater thing?
can you think of a greater thing? And what kind of audacity is it to look in the eyes of this benevolent, loving, sacrificial one and say, but I'm not worthy? His church has to be better than that. We have to be better than that. Not in us getting better, but in our ability to recognize who he is and what he's done, and that the work of the cross was enough for you. In the midst of your weakness, in the midst of every struggle, the work of the cross was enough. When he said, it is finished, that applies across everything in your life. It is finished. I have bought them. Father, they are yours. Now let's speak destiny to them and get them about their business. The story constructed just for them. Okay, sorry, I'm super excited about that. Y'all, it's such a big deal. And, uh, yeah. There's no space for anyone in this room to delay stepping into destiny. That doesn't mean there isn't process. It doesn't mean that things in your life won't need to be addressed. But if you get the yes settled first, then walking through the process is a joy because he's the Lord. And when he's the Lord, you walk with him. And him walking you through a process is wonderful and grace-filled and delightful. And you get to be present when his kingdom comes. Okay, Jesus, magnify yourself in this room. Holy Spirit, come and make him known. Lord, that we would see you as you rightly are. Father, Jesus' name. Okay. Year six comes, and it is really, really hard. Prior to COVID, I would say it was the worst year of my life. Basically, everything that could go wrong went wrong. We had a lot of momentum into year six, and then everything fell apart in year six. But in the midst of that, do you know what the Lord did? We are tanking. And what I mean by tanking is we're not running into sin, we're just start, we're starting to lose passion. We're starting to lose focus. We're starting to ask questions. You ever been there? Wow, Lord, I, it seemed like everything was going right. And then what in the world? I'm now stuck in a corner and I cannot see. And in the midst of that place, he started whispering, it's coming. It's right around the corner. It's coming. Don't stop believing. It is okay to be weary. It is okay to have moments or days or weeks where you feel half-hearted. You are wholeheartedly with me. Don't lose heart. Don't lose hope. It's coming. And then one day, I got a phone call. And we had entered into this agreement with this media follow-up company for Muslims who are interested in learning about Jesus. Now, I want to put some context on this because it's actually important to understand. At this time, in 1,500 years, there had never been a move of God in the Middle East. So when we felt nervous and shaken, it was because never is a really long time, Right? And on this particular day, in the, in the swell of hope of God promising it's coming, it's right around the corner, 
This guy calls, he goes, okay, I got two guys, Trey. You can have one. We're gonna give the other one to someone else. He goes, bro, this first guy, he's amazing. He goes, he's 21. He's just given his life to Jesus. And he's saying that he wants to see the whole nation transformed. He's just looking for an older mentor to help him. And I'm like, that's me. That's me. Amen. And I'm not listening because I'm so enamored with guy number one as guy number two is being described. And as I begin to clue back into the conversation from all my imagination of what me and young buck are going to do, I start hearing words like, he's old, he's a little weird, his story's really crazy. And as I open my mouth to say, I'll take the young guy, I don't know how else to say it than the Holy Spirit arrested me. He took away my ability to speak. And he said, Trey, said, you and I have walked this entire journey together and you would make this decision without me? He said, hang up the phone. So I said, hey man, I'll call you back. He goes, hurry. I'm like, okay, click. And I went into my room and the Lord spoke very, very quickly. He said, the old man is yours. So I called him back. I said, hey, the old man is mine. The guy went, really? He was disappointed in my choice. And I said, yes, what the Lord's saying. The young man never showed up to a single meeting. He disappeared into the wind and the old man was a man we affectionately referred to as Noah, who became the champion of the first move of God in the history of the Middle East. What I want you to hear out of this is that the Lord is ambitious for you. He was not going to allow me to throw away my inheritance in a moment of foolishness. He went so far as to steal my voice to make sure he had my attention so that he could direct me so that my life wouldn't be thrown away in a moment of silliness. That's how much he loves me. That's how much he loves you. But to have moments like this, you actually have to put yourself in them. So we go and we, I meet this guy and he was, he is just like me, except shorter and older. Okay. And Arab, right? So his name was Noah. He walked around like this everywhere he went. And every time, every time I asked him to go get his Bible, he would run like this. <laughs> and he was 62 at the time, 63, something like that. And we begin to meet with him and we begin to realize this guy's the real deal. He had already led multiple people to faith and had gathered others who were interested. And as we began to meet with him and disciple him and walk with him, we began to see the power of God flow. And what started out as a group of 21 believers, it doubled every month for eight months, 10 months. We enter into the summer of 2011. There's over a thousand believers. Let me be clear on what a believer means to them. This was not our definition. This was their definition. That you've renounced the Quran and you've renounced Muhammad. That you have proclaimed that Jesus is the Lord and you've been baptized. And you regularly share the gospel because no one who has the good news would ever withhold it from a lost and dying world. 
We didn't add that last one in. They added that last one in. And the stories, the things that would happen. Can I tell you one of the most dangerous and most fun things to do is to take this book, put it in the hands of a new believer and don't mess with them and watch what they do. They heal the sick. They cast out demons. I'll never forget the first time Noah told me the story of casting out a demon. He's telling me the story of this woman who is manifesting on his couch. And I said, what'd you do? And he looked at me like I was nuts. He said, I cast it out in Jesus' name, you idiot, basically. <laughs> and, and I'm like, well, oh, he goes, isn't that what the Bible says I'm supposed to do? Yes. I remember one time I was sitting and there was a lady there who had become a believer and her husband was not and he had discovered that she was a believer. And so to punish her, he was going to take a second younger wife and move her into the house. Now in Islam, you can have multiple wives, but the way it generally works is you get a new house for each wife that you have and you spend equal time. But if you pull a new younger wife into the same house with an older wife, the older wife becomes the servant of the younger. And it is a humiliating position. And she's sitting with us and she's weeping. What do I do? How do I love Jesus in the midst of this? And we're, let's just wait on God. And, and as, as we're talking, she, she's, she's weeping. And all of a sudden she stops. She looks up at us and she goes, here's what I'm going to do. She said, I'm going to love that second wife. I'm going to share the gospel with her and see if she will accept the one who loves me like me. And as she's talking, all of a sudden, and I, I, I don't know how else to explain this, the manifest glory of God radiates out of her eyes like this blinding light and I thought maybe only I was seeing it. And so I tapped no. I'm like, do you see that? He goes, yeah, what is that? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> but it was this beautiful picture of this sacrificial, obedient love. And it was this picture of this passage in Romans that says we only get to share in his glory if we share in his sufferings. She had made this willing choice to share in the sufferings of Jesus for the sake of this woman. And so the Lord poured his glory out instantaneously on her. It was amazing. Another time we're sitting there and he gets a call. And now as things grew, and, and I just, I, I'm running out of time. So I just wanted, I'm going to hit some of the high points in, the, in another story. Is that Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so as this thing continued to grow, and it grew, and we, and we, we had persecution. We had people martyred for their faith. We had people imprisoned, including some of my teammates. But it grew to thousands and thousands, not only in our country, but in many neighboring countries. And as persecution began to hit, the movement began to kind of disperse in protection and kind of separating itself from foreigners, which was the right thing to do. And the question began to be asked, not by them, 
not by these beautiful Muslim background brothers, but by the ones who fact check what God is doing in the earth. Did you really see anything? And we began to go through this process where people began pushing on us. Are you lying about all of this? We can't see this. And in that place, you start to ask yourself, am I crazy? Did I not see glory come out of her eyes? Did I not see the healings? Did I not hear? And then about a year later, I'm sitting with this beautiful believer from Lebanon that is a good friend of ours. And, and he said, hey, you need to know something. He said, I know that Noah is struggling and under persecution. And he said, but though there were no moves of God before Noah, now there are 11 moves of God happening around the Middle East. And today there's far more. And he said, of the 11 we know, at least five of the leaders of those movements were either directly discipled by Noah or envisioned by him. So the fruit of your life remains. So listen, beloved. I know not everyone is here. But God doesn't count fruit the way we do. He doesn't count how many heinies are in seats or how many people did this or that this month. He has a far more eternal perspective, right? I don't know, I don't know what your destiny is. I don't know what God has for you. I don't know the individual stories that he's written for each of you and the collective story he's written for this body, which is a beautiful intermingling of all of your inner individual stories. But here's what I do know, that if you don't get the issue of Jesus as Lord settled in your life, you will be limited to stories of this kingdom only. And you were made for so much more. You were made to co-author with the Lord stories of his kingdom come to earth. You were made to walk with him. You were made to be carried by the river of the spirit as it moves powerfully, whether it's in another nation or in your neighborhood, and to see him do great and marvelous things in response to your obedience. He does it all and then he rewards you. It's ridiculous. But I know that every one of you was made for kingdom story. So as we step into this time of responding to the Lord, understand that if the issue of lordship, if the issue of being decided that Jesus is Lord is not settled, then the doors to supernatural destiny remain closed. And we're gonna open up the altar space. Band, you guys can come up. Or, what, or is that what we're doing here? You guys can come up. We're gonna leave the altar open and it's time to do business. It's time to get the issue settled. 
so that when you run into anyone who goes to Antioch Phoenix, there's a comfort in asking, what is God speaking and how are you responding? And how can I come alongside and how can we do it together? Father, we come before you and we say, Jesus, you are the Lord. Jesus, you and you alone are the Lord. And each and every one of us want to walk into the fullness of our kingdom destiny. We want to see the plans that you have for us come to fruition. Lord, over each individual and over this church, and Lord, we come. We come and we say, Lord, you are the Lord. Lord, we lay down whatever stands in the way. We hold nothing back because we are bought and you own us and you have great things for us. In Jesus' name.